Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along. We have back today, by almost by popular acclaim, Adam Clayton Powell III, a friend of mine and an enormously accomplished man. Last time he was on, he talked about his illustrious parents, his father, the great congressman, who was a civil rights reformer, a preacher, and something of a swashbuckler, and his immensely talented mother, Hazel Scott, who I looked up on and watched her on the YouTube, you should do it too. She was a gifted singer, piano player, an all-round fabulous entertainer. And Adam, welcome back to the broadcast. It is Black History Month, and I wonder what that means to you as an African-American. Well, uh, first, uh, thank you for inviting me back. And uh, despite the, uh, uh, the acclaim or lack of it, um, Black History Month has always been a point of pride with me because it is a time when we can celebrate um, uh, the African-American contributions to the United States, the African-American place in the United States, uh, but also uh, it's a time when there is increased attention to people who are in our history who may not otherwise have been honored. And uh, they range from, uh, uh, you mentioned a politician and uh, an entertainer, but they could be inventors. Uh, the person who invented the home uh, uh, security system was a black woman. Uh, to uh, to engineers, to pilots, to uh, uh, to everyone who has uh, helped make America a better place. Your own career has been quite stunning. You went to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, which is really a tremendous school to get into. It has an acceptance rate at present of four percent. It was never easy to get in, was it, Adam? How did you come to go to MIT? Uh, well, I had very, very good uh, uh, test scores, something which is uh, not always honored these days. But I uh, had out of a score of eight, a total possible score of 800, uh, 796 on the math, which of course really impressed MIT, but also more than 700 on the verbal. Uh, and those were relatively uh, unusual at the time, but also I just loved physics and math. Um, and I guess that came through in my application. Um, having said that, um, actually, I did minor in math, but uh, somehow I left physics behind as an undergraduate. And uh, I have known you all these decades as a journalist, as a broadcaster, CBS, NPR, uh, on and on for a while. Uh, the the uh, manager of the station that originates this program, WHUT, Howard University in Washington. Uh, how did you come to be a broadcaster and then to succeed so magnificently in broadcasting? Well, uh, I don't know about the success, but I began in broadcasting because of uh, two newsmakers. One was uh, Norbert Wiener, who was the father of cybernetics, a great computer pioneer, a leading professor at MIT, and uh, he died suddenly um, during my freshman year uh, at MIT. And I uh, had gone down to the MIT radio station to complain about their news and their jazz. I said, your, your jazz is terrible and your news is worse. Uh, and they said, well, the jazz department's full, but we need volunteers for news. And that's how I uh, had a toehold in news. 
And when Norbert Wiener died, words spread through the campus. And uh, I ran, literally ran down to the radio station and said, what are we doing about this? Norbert Wiener has died. And they said, well, you know, uh, UPI will probably run a story about it. And I said, no, 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 we're MIT. Um, give me five minutes at five o'clock. And I ran back to the MIT news office and did a five-minute ad-lib, a five-minute special report on his life, and then ran back to the station and said, what should we do next? And they said, well, you know, there's that UPI machine in the back. I said, well, no, 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 we're MIT. I know. I'll get the president of MIT to talk about Norbert Wiener. And he looked at me and said, oh, oh, <laughs> this freshman is going to try to get the president of MIT on this radio station. And I said, well, why not? Um, let's see. I'll call his office. I'm sorry. Dr. Rostrup has left for the day. Now, let's see. Does anybody know where he lives? <sighs> Stupid freshman. He lives in the president's house. Don't go there. So I didn't go there, but I did call. And uh, to get him on the phone, I thought, I'm a freshman. What can they do to me? Um, uh, when a woman answered the phone, I said, hello. I said, is Julius there? It's Adam calling. And she said, oh, yes, Adam. Just a moment. To this day, I have no idea who she thought I was, but it did get him on the phone. And uh, then I wouldn't let him off the phone until he agreed to talk about Norbert Wiener. He kept saying, young man, I'm not making a statement. Young man, I have no comment. When finally he began, I first met Norbert Wiener when he was my freshman advisor. It turned out the man had been his mentor throughout his career. And being a university president, he spoke in perfect sentences and paragraphs for 10 minutes. And at the end, he said, young man, is that what you had in mind? I said, yes, thank you. Well, no one else had that. The Boston Globe wanted a copy. The Associated Press wanted a copy. CBS News wanted a copy. And uh, I thought, well, that's the, and the next day they made me news director of the station. So that was my first step into journalism, but I was still an aspiring uh, computer scientist until the next summer when uh, I thought, well, I'm going to be home in New York. I know nothing about this journalism business other than talking to people and getting them to come to the phone. And so I called a longtime family friend uh, who had been out of a job for years, a journalist who was well known in the United States, but he had been fired by ABC. And his name was Mike Wallace. And he agreed to uh, uh, give me some tips about journalism. I said, I'll buy you coffee or something. And he said, well, actually, I have a new job. I've, I've been hired by CBS as a general assignment correspondent. And so I went, uh, uh, he invited me over. I went to the, uh, wasn't at the broadcast center yet. It was still on Madison Avenue, excuse me, Lexington Avenue. And um, uh, it was literally hanging out when, just like in the movies, um, they needed somebody right away. And someone turned to me and said, can you cut copy? I had no idea what he was talking about, but of course I said, yes. Uh, and the next thing I knew, I was an intern for the summer at CBS News. Uh, uh, I called uh, my father at his office at the House of Representatives. And uh, uh, after a bit of silence, I said, hello, are you still there? And he said, well, uh, you're not gonna tell them what goes on, are you? Uh, then I called my mother who uh, 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 burst out laughing. I said, why are you laughing? She said, well, everyone has been wondering whether you'll be a politician like your father or an entertainer like your mother, and you're at CBS News where you can do both. Uh, so, um, uh, so that was my beginning. I uh, worked for CBS for three summers um, and got to go to the 1964 political conventions where due to another series of, um, uh, of uh, chance uh, occurrences, I was actually with Mike Wallace on the floor of the convention when he turned to me and said, 
look, I'll be right back. I, I'm going to be off the floor for about five minutes. Just as he went off the floor, Fannie Lou Hamer of the Mississippi Freedom Democrats came onto the floor. And it was the lead story of the night. Who was going to be sitting in the Mississippi delegation? The segregationists, regular Democrats, or Fannie Lou Hamer and the Freedom Democrats? LBJ, President Johnson, was terrified that this was going to destroy his convention and perhaps his reelection. Um, and there I was. And so I picked up a, a CBS phone uh, and, and uh, called upstairs to the uh, uh, Don Hewitt, was the executive producer of the of the floor. And I said, you've got to get somebody over here. Fannie Lou Hamer is here. I've got Frank McGee coming from NBC. I've got uh, John Scalley coming from ABC. Who is this? I said, uh, this is Adam Powell. I'm the intern. Well, where's Mike? I said, he's, he's off the floor. But I see Corral. You can move Corral. No, I can't move Corral. I see Bill Stout. No, I can't move Bill Stout. Let me give you to Av Weston, the executive producer of the convention, and who I knew because I was his intern. And Av said, hi, Adam. What's up? And I told him. He said, um, you've done this before, right? And before I could say yes on college radio, he said, look up. Can you see balcony camera 44? I see it. He's waving at you. Yeah, I see him. I see him. That's your camera. You're on in 10 seconds, which is how I began as a reporter on the floor of the 1964 Democratic Convention live on CBS News. And after that, I thought, this is much more interesting than writing computer code. So that's how I got into journalism. Well, and uh, how did it go from there? Because you've had a very long and very successful career. Might I ask, going back to our earlier conversation, many of the privations that young African-Americans have suffered or difficulties in career, barriers, et cetera. Did you face any of those? Oh, yes. I, I was uh, often the, the first Black person to do this or that or this or that, the first Black news director of a major station in New York, the first Black uh, manager of news, CBS News, the first Black uh, manager of political and election coverage, CBS News, uh, the first Black head of news for NPR, and on and on and on. Um, but um, uh, there also were, well, I remember one person uh, at uh, CBS, uh, I spent, after those three summers, I spent a total of 16 years at CBS stations and, and at CBS News. And there was one senior executive at CBS News who said that I would um, uh, be working at CBS News over his dead body. Um, and um, I thought that was um, not my problem, but his. And in fact, um, I wound up uh, uh, in some fairly senior positions at CBS uh, after he left. So uh, I don't know whether he was still alive or not, but I, I, he had left the, the, the division. Um, and one big change for me it was when the longtime president of CBS News, Richard Solent, one of the great pioneers and, and largely unsung of uh, broadcast uh, journalism, he came to the newsroom in 1966. I was still the summer intern. He said, oh, uh, you're the kid who goes to MIT, right? And I said, uh, yes, Mr. Solent. You must know about the space program. I said, well, I know some. I'm not narrow and astro major, but I've anchored coverage for the MIT radio station. Good enough. Um, Cronkite needs another writer. Catch the next flight to Florida which is how I began writing for Walter Cronkite. And I worked with Walter Cronkite straight through until his uh, uh, until he left CBS News in 1981. Um, that, was 19, that was 1966. And I remember I got to uh, Florida and uh, Cronkite was uh, uh, correctly suspicious of this undergraduate they sent down to be a writer for me. And he said, give me 20 seconds on gimbal lock. 
I froze. He said, you know what that is, right? I said, well, uh, of course I know what it is. Uh, MIT uh, designs and builds the uh, guidance programs for the Poseidon missile, the, the missile, the Apollo spacecraft. And he said, fine. I said, well, I, I just don't know if I can describe it in 20 seconds. And he said, all right, 25. He was an old wire service guy. What people don't understand is the time pressure in television. I, I uh, started my own rather modest career uh, in print. And when I got to television in London, my immediate superior said, just the nuggets, King, just the nuggets. And uh, you had to boil, you know, an hour's debate down to a couple of minutes. And this was more generous than American stations. You learn to do it. But I think it does a lot for your general writing because it does teach you brevity and how to condense a lot into uh, a single sentence or couple of sentences. In this, and I call it illustrious, my word, uh, in this illustrious career, when did you have the most fun? Ah, uh, um, I, I would uh, um, single out a couple of places. One was uh, WINS, which was, uh, is a, an all-news radio station uh, in New York City. And um, uh, I was first an editor there and then became news director in 1974 and introduced a slogan and a format, give us 22 minutes and we'll give you the world. And the idea was that we would repeat the lead story three times an hour. That was amazing because you were never off the air. Uh, something happened, you had to respond to it right away. Um, I, I love to sort of flood the zone. I had, um, when I became news director, I put uh, reporters, plural, on the clock at 6 a.m. so that we could go live when most people were listening. We went from fifth in the market to first in the market in one rating book, which was almost unprecedented, and then stayed there. Um, and uh, years later, I, I ran into the uh, new general manager, and I said, you know, I, I, uh, the, I listen to WINS, and you have the same format lines, the same format. Uh, that uh, we put in in 1974. And he said, why should I change? We're the number one billing station in New York. And then you moved on. How did you get to NPR, National Public Radio? Um, I uh, was approached by uh, Doug Bennett, who was then the president of NPR, and he asked me for uh, an appraisal of NPR News. And I thought he wanted a consultant. And so uh, uh, that meant I could be fearless, right? Uh, and so I was actually living at that time in Northern California and on my son's VIC-20 computer, and uh, uh, those of you with a certain age will remember, this is a little tiny computer. Uh, I have notes on morning edition, all things considered, uh, weekend edition and others, and eventually uh, uh, reformed it, hit print, and the printer went, those old printers. I put it in a FedEx envelope and sent it off to NPR. The next morning at uh, about 3 a.m. Pacific time, I got a call from Cokie Roberts who said, we love your opinions of our broadcasts. I said, oh, um, who is we? Because some of them were not entirely, um, well, they weren't entirely 100% praise. And she said, oh, Doug came downstairs and he posted it in the newsroom. <laughs> and uh, 
Um, and then Doug called when it was uh, a little later uh, and uh, the sun had come up in, in, in uh, uh, California. And he said, oh, we'd like you to come to Washington and uh, uh, be uh, vice president of news, which is the first I realized that he didn't want a consultant. He wanted somebody who I said, well, Doug, uh, uh, that, that, uh, that's really a bit of a problem because uh, uh, I don't know if I can do that. And he said, well, we'll work this out. And we did. So I did that and we when, uh, we opened bureaus. It was very much a building phase. People forget that NPR actually um, lost audience uh, just before I arrived. The audience was going down and they'd had a, a tremendous financial problem. Uh, and so it was a matter of rebuilding. Uh, and so we opened uh, uh, the first bureaus in Asia. We opened uh, bureaus in East Africa and uh, uh, Southern Africa. We increased domestic reporting uh, from around the country. Uh, it was a it was a wonderful time, and uh, our audience went up twenty five percent. And in my second year, which would have been nineteen eighty nine, NPR won every major award in broadcasting. Everything, Ohio State, Columbia Dupont, uh, everything. And uh, um, and I remember one executive producer came into my office and said, "Are we really that good?" <laughs> um, and it, it was, uh, uh, again, being at the right place at the right time. And uh, I wanted to talk about that, about being in the right place at the right time. How much of your career involves struggle? How much luck? How much talent? And how much pure happenstance? Uh, well, there's a, a saying you probably heard that uh, success is 10% uh, what you know, 10% who you know, and 80% luck. And that I'll go with those uh, those ratios. That's about right. Uh, uh, being in the right place at the right time, um, uh, happening, ha ha being um, uh, in digital technology uh, at just the right time. And here's what I mean: um, the internet was invented back in 1968. It was invented for scientists. It was very difficult to use. Um, and uh, the Gannett Company, um, headed by uh, uh, Alan Newharth, and then the Gannett Foundation, which Newharth also headed, they wanted me to be the director of technology for a new media study center at Columbia University. And I said, I can't do that. I'm living in Northern California. I've got you know, kids in high school. I can't move to New York. And they said, can you be a consultant? Sure. A few years later, they said, okay, your kids must be out of high school. Can you now join us as head of technology? I said, sure, I can come to New York and do that. I came to New York just as uh, the World Wide Web was invented. And my two sons, also who also went to MIT, they got me on the phone. They said, Dad, we're not going to let you off the phone until you get on this World Wide Web, this new thing that's just been invented by Tim Berners-Lee in Switzerland. I said, World Wide Web, what a stupid name. That sounds like some kid's toy. They said, Dad, we're not going to get off the phone until you get on the World Wide Web. So I fired up my computer. The next thing I remember, I said, oh, thank you very much and hung up. The next thing I remember is the cleaning people coming in at four in the morning. It was that much of a transformative experience. But the big thing was I could tell people, uh, editors and uh, journalists who would come to uh, uh, seminars, no longer did I have to talk about hypercards and, uh, and formulas. I could just say, click here. And he said, oh, click here. Okay, we can get that. And so I was in exactly the right place, just as everyone could use the internet. 
Um, what would you say to aspiring young African-Americans or any aspiring young person, but let's say African-Americans, about a career in journalism these days when journalism is so topsy-turvy and where old institutions are failing and new ones are just getting established? Uh, two things. Uh, make certain that you uh, keep abreast of technology. The only constant is change. And so you have to keep abreast of technology and how that's going to change content. But the other is, paradoxically, you have to have a really strong grounding in the old rules of content uh, over and over again. I mean, Salant, I've, I've talked about, longtime president of CBS News, he said if there was an award given for keeping stories off the air, you should get one because over and over again, there would be even experienced reporters that would get caught up in a story. And I'd say, you're not quite there yet. You haven't quite convinced me. And it's my job to help you convince our audience that you're right. Uh, and so, uh, in fact, I just did an investigative reporting class in uh, USC, and I said, by the end of chapter two of the book, All the President's Men, Woodward and Bernstein basically know what's happened. The rest of the book is how they proved it. Um, and so that's just a very old fashioned, get the facts um, uh, and um, be prepared to be surprised. Because one of the great things about reporting is you discover things that are new, including to you. Absolutely. Um, what are the routes into journalism nowadays? The old traditional one was local paper or for African-Americans, the African-American press, which was very vigorous and very important. Your father, I think, established one of those newspapers. Yes, uh, uh, my, father, my father had a weekly newspaper, The People's Voice uh, in New York. And uh, I believe those, uh, the archive of The People's Voice is now at Columbia University. But uh, uh, it's, it's the path into journalism has changed because you don't have the, uh, the great gatekeepers of the mass media era. I mean, they're still there, but they're not the gatekeepers. You can, uh, uh, I, I know people, uh, students um, uh, from USC, where I've been uh, since uh, 2003, and some go to uh, the big network affiliates, some go to the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Washington Post. But others start their own websites, or they join uh, uh, websites that are starting up, uh, new media, um, and some of them become in very, very, very successful. And you think we're going to see more of that new media? Uh, yes, the, the barriers to entry are down. Uh, the question is what the, what the upside is, uh, how, how much money can you make? Uh, for example, Substack, uh, which began what uh, in the past few years, there are some people making a lot of money on Substack. There are journalists making money on TikTok, where you have to do I've things in seconds. There are an awful lot of journalists working for very, very low wages in, yes. in broadcasting. And I yes. face this issue wherever I can that you won't get the talent you need if you don't have decent wage structure. And, and you won't get the talent from African-American and other uh, uh, journalists who don't have a lot of money, uh, other families that don't have a lot of money, if you don't pay them. And there are so many unpaid positions in journalism, particularly here in Washington. Uh, we're winding down on time. So I think you should tell us about what you're doing now, where you are executive director of the Election Cybersecurity Initiative and director of Washington programs 
to the Annenberg Center on Communications, Leadership, and Policy at the University of Southern California, which is a title you would not get into most television programs. Uh, that's that's quite correct. Uh, in 2003, uh, I went to NPR, and then uh, at, in 2010, I reached the customary age of retirement, and so I tried to retire, and USC's president said, we will not let you retire. I thought he was joking. He wasn't. Um, so now what I'm doing is uh, uh, I'm running a 50-state election cybersecurity campaign to keep American elections and campaigns secure from, particularly from Russian, Chinese, North Korean, and Iranian uh, uh, cyber attacks. We are, we believe, and we've been told by the federal government, that we are the only entity active with all 50 states, uh, except for the federal government. Uh, the other thing I'm doing right now is I just uh, started an Africa initiative uh, uh, where we bring speakers uh, by video uh, from Africa to uh, an in-person monthly gathering in Washington and to uh, online uh, uh, live streaming events. Uh, and that's uh, Africa is where I've worked for a long time. Uh, uh, I went in 1990 after uh, 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 Nelson Mandela was released from prison and wound up uh, greeting him when he came to the United States. Uh, uh, much, much to my surprise, my father always said, if you send an invitation, the worst they can say is no. So you're back where you started. If they say yes, you've made progress. So I faxed an invitation to Nelson Mandela in uh, uh, 1993 when he was coming to Washington to get the Medal of Freedom from President Clinton. He said yes and actually came uh, uh, to, uh, to our event before he went to the White House. What do you think about the state of race relations? We've been examining it quite thoroughly these last several months. Uh, it is, it, of course, uh, far from perfect. And the thing that keeps coming up is uh, what I would frame as really, really bad training of law enforcement. I mean, there's something really wrong when, to take one example, five armed police officers uh, cannot detain one unarmed, in this case, African-American young man uh, without uh, shooting him. I mean, that's it, it, something is just wrong in the training of, of law enforcement when uh, that is uh, something which happens repeatedly uh, uh, and variations of that happen repeatedly. But race relations generally uh, have improved. I mean, you go back, uh, uh, and not that long ago, uh, I was in fact talking with someone earlier today about uh, uh, the National Football League and how only, let's see, uh, this is 20, only 40 years ago, there are actual quotes you can pull from, uh, from uh, sports journalism of people who said that you could never have a black quarterback because black people just aren't smart enough to be quarterbacks. That's the kind of thing that used to be accepted. Uh, and uh, I remember my parents saying, uh, the thing that will really be a breakthrough in race relations is when you have a black quarterback and white people are rooting for him. Thank you for joining us. And I do hope you come back. That's our show for today. We're so glad you joined us. We'll see you next time. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen, we are there.